It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello, I'm Tim Cross, the Economist Science and Technology Correspondent, and you're listening to Babbage, our weekly podcast on science and technology. Coming up, can homemade drones threaten conventional armed forces? Actors like ISIS have been using those to drop small grenades in places like Mosul, and they have proven remarkably effective and remarkably difficult to shoot down. And might there be a lithium rush rather than a gold rush in Cornwall? Well, they know there's lithium in them there hills, and that's because when you go back to the 1800s and the uh, Cornish tin mining, they used to find it. But first, choose your headline. Cars to Mars? Oh my God, it's full of cars? Whatever you prefer, he did it. Elon Musk, the owner of SpaceX, has just launched the world's most powerful rocket, the Falcon Heavy, with his Tesla sports car strapped to the top and David Bowie blaring from the speakers. Ten, nine, eight, Side booster ignition. Six, five, four, three, two, one. Crazy things can come true. I didn't really think this would work. Um, When I see the rocket liftoff, I see like a thousand things that that could not work, and it's amazing when they do. That was the two side boosters. If you guys are here, you saw them land. Uh, That was epic. That's probably the most exciting thing I've ever seen literally ever. Although, admittedly, no one will be able to hear David Bowie in space. But it was a big breakthrough for SpaceX. I'm joined by Oliver Morton, The Economist briefing editor, and also the author of Mapping Mars, Science, Imagination and the Birth of a New World. Hi, Ollie. Hi, Tim. So, SpaceX, the Falcon Heavy, it happened, it worked. What do you think? I thought that it was a remarkable sight, and I I could tell from Twitter that I was not alone in this. In fact, what I thought was particularly remarkable was not this sort of like thundering 27-engined launch. It was the sort of like incredible, powerful precision and delicacy with which two of those boosters landed almost simultaneously right back where they'd started out. And also the surprisingly both amusing and moving images of that sports car drifting away from the big blue earth. It's as a piece of showmanship, and it was not as impressive as it was as a piece of technology, because it was an extraordinary achievement, but it was an impressive piece of showmanship nonetheless. The thing it reminded me of is um, there's a very old film from the 1970s, I think, called Dark Star, a sort of science fiction comedy. And just that picture of a a mannequin lolling back in the sports car with the earth sort of rotating gently in the background. It gave me me big, big Dark Star vibes. Yes. And on that basis, I think he should probably have had a surfboard in in the back seat, though I'm not actually sure Tesla Roadster has a back seat. You mentioned the boosters. I suppose that's the only small spot in this otherwise 
dramatic success. Two of them landed, as you said. The third one um, came back to Earth, but I don't think it's fair to call it a landing. No, the third one indulged in a little bit of a hydro-breaking by slamming into the sea at about 300 miles an hour. Apparently, this is because it, uh, it didn't have enough of the substance that relights the engines. So only one of the engines relit when it came in for its final, final approach. And though it was pretty much on course for the drone ship, it was moving far too fast. And so it's kind of good that it missed the drone ship, though, according to the uh, post-launch press conference, Elon Musk said that it did do some damage to the ship. And Musk himself has said that this is a game changer, I think was the word he used, or possibly even game over for SpaceX's competitors. And we know they've already taken great big chunks out of the launch market with the much smaller Falcon 9. Do you think the Falcon Heavy changes things commercially? rather than technologically or sort of inspirationally? Maybe a little and maybe in the long term. And what it does do is it establishes a certain sort of like psychological dominance. But it's not as though SpaceX can take over the launch market because, you know, a significant number of launches are undertaken by Europeans and Russians and the Chinese and the Japanese. And those powers are not going to give up launching satellites and say, oh, we'll give the Americans, we'll give this American company all our satellites to launch. So there will always be such launchers and they will always be available for commercial launchers who, for some reason or other, want to curry favor with the governments involved. You've got, also got to remember that the Falcon Heavy was originally conceived of to launch the communication satellites that were just too heavy for Falcon 9. Um, But Falcon 9, and this is one of the really interesting things about Musk's companies, Falcon 9 has been continually improved on a fairly rapid basis so that it can now itself launch more or less any communication satellite. So what does that leave for Falcon Heavy? It seems to leave three things. It leaves very big satellites of the sort used for national security in the in the United States. It leaves possibly missions for NASA, maybe involving a return to the moon, though there's an issue there with NASA's own heavy lift spacecraft. And as Musk said in the press conference, it also opens up new possibilities. If people can think of things to do with big heavy satellites or with lots and lots of satellites launched at once, there's now an option that there wasn't before. And he's doubling down on this, isn't he? Because the Falcon Heavy is not the last word. He mentioned something called the Falcon Super Heavy, which I don't think he's talked about before. But in the not too distant future, he wants to start flying something called the BFR, which stands for Big Effing Rocket, which would be absolutely colossal, the biggest rocket ever to fly, much more powerful even than the, the Saturn V, which sent the Apollo astronauts to the moon way back when. As Musk describes it now, the strategy for SpaceX is that the Falcon and the Falcon Heavy have now reached pretty much complete maturity. I'm not sure that there's going to be much of a market for a Falcon Super Heavy. Um, and it's not clear from the that there's a big commercial market for a much larger rocket like the BFR, though it's noticeable that the BFR has actually been scaled back slightly since Musk first announced it. The thing that the BFR does compete with very, very directly, and Falcon Heavy competes with a bit, is this very large rocket being built by NASA called the Space Launch System, which is designed to enable large human missions to the moon and conceivably to Mars. This is a very, very slow, very, very expensive development of a very expensive rocket. And it is well protected by um, its friends in the Senate. In fact, it's sometimes called the Senate launch system, not the space launch system. But the real 
world existence of a super heavy launch vehicle in Falcon 9 and the possibility of a much heavier one with BFR must at some point, one would have thought, begin to dent people's enthusiasm for doing the same thing with government money much more expensively and slowly. And this week's briefing in the paper is about Elon Musk and about his companies directly, about SpaceX and about Tesla. How does this fit into his sort of general approach to business? I mean, people have said many times he's not your conventional businessman. You know, he, he's very clear that the ultimate point of SpaceX is not to dominate the launch market. It's to put people on Mars. Uh, and the point of Tesla is to uh, decarbonize large chunks of, of the transport system. I agree. He's very unusual in this degree to which he's directly purpose driven. And the way that the purposes of his companies are not necessarily the way they make money. So you, you know, Google has the purpose of organizing all the world's knowledge or whatever, but that's also how it makes its money. Musk isn't saying that going to Mars is directly a way to make money, but he is saying this money making venture can take me to Mars. I think one of the interesting things is that of the two aims, spreading human civilization to Mars, changing the way cars work, you might think that the second one was going to prove to be the easier than the first. But at the moment, you'd have to say that SpaceX is looking like a better corporate bet than Tesla. Tesla has achieved some remarkable technological things, but so far, it hasn't yet proved to the market that it can actually mass produce a mass market electric vehicle rather than a luxury electric vehicle and produce the batteries at the huge scale that it says that it's going to. And And it's burning through an awful lot of money. So if you want to worry about a Musk project, then worry about Tesla. At the same time, I think worrying about Musk on the basis of his track record might be worry poorly spent in that even if Tesla does not end up being a major car company, even if it does go badly, I think the idea that Elon Musk is not going to go on achieving some fairly remarkable things either with SpaceX or with SpaceX and some other thing is slightly hard to credit. Oli, well, thank you very much. Thank you, Tim. If you have any thoughts on the Falcon Heavy and Elon Musk's quest to colonise Mars, maybe you want to go yourself. We'd like to hear from you via email to radio at economist.com or you can tweet us at Economist Radio. Next, armed forces around the world are under attack from a new type of weapon, homemade, readily available and cheap drones. Even a lone drone can do plenty of damage. The economist David Hambling has been looking into the matter. So... David, when we think of drones, people, or at least I, normally think of either great big sort of military machines built by Lockheed Martin and carrying racks of missiles or whatever, or I think of those little quadrotor parrot things that you can buy for a couple of hundred pounds and, and fly around as a hobby. What, what exactly are we, are we talking about here? Which, which end of the scale are we, are we nearer to? It's very much at the lower end of the scale. And in fact, many of them are those little quadcopters uh, that you see people uh, playing around with in the park. Uh, because actors like ISIS have been using those to drop small grenades in places like Mosul, and they have proven remarkably effective and remarkably difficult to shoot down. So the idea is literally you just you just strap a couple of grenades to one of these things, fly it to wherever your enemies are, and, and push a button. Uh, exactly. ISIS, they've posted videos of over 200 successful attacks uh, in last year alone, and they can drop grenades with amazing accuracy. They can actually drop one through the, the hatch of a tank from several hundred feet up. And you say it's hard to shoot them down. Is that simply because they're small and agile? They're hard to hit with a, with a rifle? 
they're very hard to hit with a rifle. In places like Mosul, you get entire units all blazing away into the air with very little effect because they are small targets and it's very hard to judge the distance, which makes it difficult to hit them. Larger systems like the uh, shoulder-launched and vehicle-launched surface-to-air missiles uh, simply can't spot anything that small or are actually designed to reject anything that small as clutter because normally... Uh, something with that sort of radar return would be a bird rather than an aircraft. Right. So if nothing really works very well against them, does that mean that that sort of conventional armed forces are starting to worry about these things? There is a huge scramble going on. The Russians have recently um, fielded a new tiny surface-to-air missile, uh, which is being basically uh, bolted on their existing surface-to-air missile units. Uh, after there were attacks on their air bases in Syria using small homemade drones. Uh, the US military has a large number of programs in place, uh, but basically no one seems to have a very good answer at the moment. So this is a great example of that famous William Gibson quote about the street, or I suppose in this case the, the guerrilla fighters, finding their own use for things. Where's the next step, do you think? Could we make these things fully autonomous, perhaps, if we want to really ramp up the, the dystopia? That is all. That is already very much on the way. There are uh, the the latest drones, like the latest one from DJI, has a, a lot of uh, automated obstacle avoidance and object recognition built into it. Uh, for example, it can follow you around. It can spot faces, so it knows where to take photographs and where to send to them. Uh, and it can find its own way to and from places. Obviously, those are all capabilities that could be very easily adapted to military ends. Okay, David, well, thank you very much. Thank you. Finally, we're off to Cornwall, a rugged county in the far southwest of Britain. As Poldark fans will know, it has a long history of mining and the landscape is dotted with ruins of long-closed tin and copper mines. But now, though, prospectors are looking for a new metal that's currently in high demand, lithium. The Economist's innovation editor, Paul Markilly, is here to tell us more. Hi, Paul. Hi, yeah. So um, lithium, what is it and why do we want it? Well, they know there's lithium in them there hills. That's because when you go back to the 1800s and the uh, Cornish tin mining, they used to find it. Back then, though, it was more of a curiosity and um, something of a, a problem because it would cause flooding and it would be in the form of hot springs containing lithium salts. But of course, then there was no real market for the stuff, so nothing much was done about it apart from it being a nuisance. But today there is a market, isn't there? Today there is very much indeed a market. It's the principal material that gives us lithium-ion batteries, which are becoming used everywhere now in everything from smartphones to gadgets, electric cars, and potentially systems that will store renewable energy. And who exactly is it who thinks there might be deposits of this stuff worth mining in Cornwall then? Well, there's a group of organisations, some of them research organisations, some of them consultants, and indeed a startup called um, Cornish Lithium, which is actually already obtaining rights to prospect for and for mine lithium. And they've joined together with an organisation called the Satellite Applications Catapult, which is a rather oddly named innovation centre backed by the British government. And together they're planning to use satellites to actually look for where these deposits are likely to be. So you can actually hunt lithium under the ground from space? The idea is that you can. What you look for are certain geological features such as faults in the ground where the water that washes the lithium out of the rocks could channel this stuff into the underground springs, changes in temperature and even changes in vegetation because you can 
pick up the chlorophyll change in the leaves of plants, for instance, which could indicate there's something going on in the ground below, which could uh, tell that there are lithium deposits to be found. And then once you've found the lithium, how easy is it to actually get out of the ground? I mean, if I remember my chemistry correctly, it, it reacts um, quite enthusiastically with, with water. So, you know, if you expose it to the open air, doesn't it, doesn't it catch on fire? That's right. I mean, lithium doesn't exist naturally in its elemental form. So what you do is you find it locked up in other compounds such as lithium salts. Several ways of getting it out, you can attack the rocks, which is what some uh, ore companies are doing in uh, Australia. Or you can find big lakes of the stuff which you dry out a bit like salt mining uh, and, then, and then scoop up the salts from that. That's largely done in South America, in Chile, for instance. And this is one of the reasons why um, people are potentially excited about this beyond the fact that you can, you can dig up the stuff and, and sell it for money. Lithium production is quite concentrated around the world at the moment, isn't it? So a new source of the stuff would presumably be welcome. It is indeed concentrated and the price of the material has gone up. It used to be about $6,000 for a tonne of lithium carbonate. That's now more, probably more than $10,000. So the price is going up and companies, because of the big demand for electric cars, electric, all sorts of things, and the need for batteries, there is a feeling that um, some producers and some companies would like to be sure that they've got a greater variety of sources and they want to secure places where they can get this material. So perhaps there'll be a lithium rush rather than a gold rush in Cornwall. Paul, thanks very much. Pleasure. And that's all for this edition of Babbage. Don't forget to pick up this week's Economist, or you can find us online at economist.com. In London, this is The Economist. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation... Partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.